It is a gathering uh, when one or two gather. All right, um, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time, and we pray that uh, you would um, just continue to edify us and encourage us and point us to the cross. Um, point us to you, Father. Help us um, um, understand your words. Help us to apply it into our lives. Help us do so with love and grace. And um, we pray, Father, that, that you would um, make us comfortable in places where we aren't normally comfortable and, um, and allow us to be okay with being uncomfortable as well. And um, we want to know you and we want to, um, we want to rest in knowing that, um, that you love us and you've provided us everything that you need for us to know you and to grow in our relationship with you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so picking back up, uh, part two, so welcome back. Um, um, I'm just going to just jump right in. We, are, we left off uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So uh, point number five is that God desires order in the church, in the gathered church. Like there's, there's an intentionality to this. So let me read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 28. He says, what then, brother? So after everything that he said, everything that he's applied, right, that we just talked about in the first part of this, of how this uh, ought to look, um, how, how then does it look inside of the gathering? He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He says, let all things be done for building up. So I'll just break there for a quick second. That's not the church service that we're normally used to, right? Like this idea where it talks about like everyone has, and, and I don't think his intent is to say that absolutely everybody that comes in must have something or bring something. That's not his point. But his point is certainly that it's a community effort, that we are all gathering together to contribute, um, to um, edify each other. And so he says, so let everything be done for building up. He says in verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Okay, so what do we read out of this? Paul lays out some pretty stringent guidance as to like how this is supposed to be. And I, again, I will say that we can continue to operate in a place where um, I don't think we need to declare what, what tongues are yet at this point. Because once again, he's saying, however this is, here's the rules for how it should be applied in the church. And what does he say? Um, he says that there's three max. He says two, or at the most three. I think it's humorous that he says two first, and then he's like, at the most three, right? There's a, from Paul's perspective, there is an intent in the church service. There is an intent in the gathering that is edification. And so he says there's, there's a limit to this. We don't, we don't want this to go off the rails. We want this to be orderly. Um, he says that each one should do it in turn, meaning in order. So this isn't a simultaneous thing. This is something that should be done, like, Hey, here's somebody that's speaking, okay? Um, and then he's going to say, and let someone interpret. So, so from Paul's uh, writing here, what we can get is that a, a picture of a very orderly, controlled service that God impresses upon somebody, a, a, a speaking in tongues, um, whatever that may be, and they do it in turn, in order, 
and there's three at most during a service. I mean, that seems to be pretty clear instruction from Paul in how he's applying this. Um, And then what we see, and this is actually a pretty important part, in verse 28, he says, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. And so there is a very fundamental important point here in that, again, he goes back to what he's been saying the entirety in chapter 14. This is for edification, right? Intelligible words. Like, we, we have to be able to understand what's going on. So somebody needs to be able to interpret this and for the body and for edifying everybody that's, that's here. And so he says, if there isn't somebody that can interpret, then they shouldn't speak at all. Like that, that's pretty, that, that is exactly what he says. And so he says, let them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. And so um, this doesn't mean like I'm going to speak and then we'll see God will provide. It means like there will be somebody with this gift who will then interpret either the language, if it's a foreign language, because again, I'm not taking a stance yet. Um, I don't even know if I will. Uh, and then, or if it's a heavenly dialect, whichever one it is, there needs to be somebody that can interpret it so that the body can be edified by it. So, so those are the rules. Um, those are the rules that Paul lays down. I do find it interesting that he does limit it to a certain number, which means, again, Paul, Paul sees this as an organized, a controlled thing. I'll, there's a third point to this. This means that this is not um, an occasion where somebody is caught up in the fervor of the Spirit and is out of control. And the words are coming out, and they don't have any control over them. It's very clear that he says, God may impress upon them this, this tongue, and then they go, nope, there's no interpreter. I, I, I will speak it to God, but it's not for the body because there's nobody else here to interpret it. So there is control. There is, a, there is an on-off switch that the human body possesses, even in the midst of this. This isn't some spiritual mystic fervor that's, that just overwhelms people and we become out of control, whatever this happens to be, um, it's controlled, okay? Verse 29, he gives the same rules for the prophets as well. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So he's saying like, same thing. The prophets, when they're speaking, now they're speaking not in tongues, they're speaking in clear applicable instruction. And again, I'm not going to go down the road yet right now on what prophecy is. Um, But whatever it is, it's clearly in their language. And Paul has established that it's edifying for the church, right? Prophecy is good. Like it's very clear. It's understandable. And so he would rather people prophesy than speak in tongues um, unless they're interpreted. And so what he says is so same thing. Same rules apply. Two or three prophets at a time, let all of us weigh what's being said, embrace it, understand it, apply it into our lives. Um, and then he says, and let, um, it, verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So once again, there's control, there's order, nobody's losing control of their body or their ability to do anything. Somebody says, hey, I have something to say. Then the other person sits down and they're silent and then the next person goes in turn. Verse 31 For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. So he's saying, like, it's fine. It's kind of like you're talking to your kids, right? You're like, everybody will get a turn on the merry-go-round. Just just take your turn. We'll get there. It's fine. You know, and this is kind of Paul's emphasis as he's walking through this. Again, remember the, the, the broader context is the gathered church here. 
And then he says in verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. I think that's him doubling down on the fact that this isn't some um, involuntary, you know, control, like you don't lose control. Like if you're a prophet and the spirit of God moves you to say something, well, you're still in control of your spirit. Like you, you still have the ability to start and stop this whole thing. Verse 33, here's the summary. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. I know there's a paragraph break there, but once again, I would disagree with that. It seems like the the thought continues down into that uh, verse. Um, So I don't know if you guys have a paragraph break there or not, but for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to skip the next two verses. We're going to come back to them. It's for a reason, okay? I'm going to come back to them. But, but I feel like we're going to lose our train of thought. And I think what we're going to see is as we skip past it, we're going to, we're going to read these two things, and then we're going to be, it's going to help us affect what our interpretation is of the things in between the two bread slices, right? Um, so that's basically what we're going to do. So skip down to verse 36. This is an incredible passage because what Paul says is that the apostles had unique authority, unique authority, okay? So read this with me. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? You can hear Paul's sarcasm here. The answer is no. The answer is, Paul's going, I brought you the word of God. (laughs) You didn't come up with it. I planted you. Like this church like, that I'm writing to you, we've exchanged letters. This is all great. There's these super apostles in your church now. There's all sorts of people that, that have better speech and all these things than me. But I brought you the word of God. I'm the one that introduced you to the gospel. There, in Paul's estimation, there's some import to that. It's not just he just happened to be the one that first did it. That's how it is for us, right? Like, I would never say that to somebody else in the church. Like, I was the first one that told you about Jesus Christ, right? Like, we wouldn't do that. But Paul does. Paul does do that. Verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet, thinks, it's kind of interesting. You can just put that on the side, maybe circle that and take that for later. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul distinguishes here. He says, when I'm speaking these things, this is scripture. This is the word of God. This is what Paul is writing. And it became scripture, right? Like he's writing this stuff down. Paul right here acknowledges that the weight of what he is saying is from God. And if anybody else disagreed with him, he would say, you're not a prophet. That's how clear Paul was about what he was saying. And I think that's an important point to wrestle with because a prophet could have said, well, God told me that four people can speak in a tongue. And Paul goes, no, he didn't. That's where Paul's at. That's how Paul is operating here. He goes, no, no, I have a unique authority because why? Because I'm an apostle. I'm sent by God. I witnessed Jesus Christ. Jesus commissioned me, right? And we can go back to Acts and we can read the whole story of where Paul gets commissioned. And he emphasizes this. I think it's in Ephesians where he emphasizes that he didn't go like talk to everybody in Jerusalem, build a game plan for what he was going to do. He immediately went out and started preaching the gospel. Um, And that's Paul saying, 
I wasn't sent by the church. I wasn't sent by James or John. Like, I wasn't sent by Peter. I was sent by Jesus Christ himself. That's what makes him an apostle. And he'll go on to say that as one untimely born, right? Like he's, he's late to the fight. Um, and we can talk more about that in a bit. But, but regardless, he is saying that there is a weight to what he is saying. Verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. You see the contrast between what Paul is saying, these prophets may say, but what he says is authority. That's important. Hang on to that. Verse 39, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And so what he says here is like, hey, nowhere in this has Paul said, don't do this or anything like that. He's just put breaks, put constraints. Why? So that it's done decently and in order. Why? So that when outsiders walk in, they will see Christ. They won't say, you're mad, I'm going somewhere else. It's so that the body of Christ, we can walk alongside each other, encourage each other, edify each other, remind each other of what the victory is that we have in Christ. That's Paul's goal. And he goes, so don't let these things, don't let these gifts that God has given you distract you from that. And so that's his overarching point as we walk through this. Now, it's worthy to note that as he's saying this and as he's talking about his authority as an apostle, he's not, um, he knows that there, remember it said that um, you who think that you are an apostle, if you go to Matthew 24, 24, Jesus told us that not everything that's happening, not everything that seems spiritual is good. The devil is of the spirit as well, and so we got to be careful. And he says, Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You see, this is why signs and wonders and miracles aren't the end-all, be-all. It's not like somebody's going to walk up, and if they do one, then that means that everything that comes out of their mouth is true. There's false prophets. There's false messiahs. There's false Christ. There's false signs and wonders that, that, that Satan can do. In fact, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul writes to the Corinthians again later, look at what he says in... Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And so, so there's, a real, there's a real discernment that needs to happen here. Not everything that's spiritual is good. Everything that's spiritual needs to be tested, and we read that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. James also mentions it. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So when Paul is saying... I'm telling you a command of the Lord, and if you don't recognize that, you're wrong. What he's saying is this is Scripture. What I am writing you and telling you is unalterable Scripture breathed out by God. What you're talking about, I don't know, but it's not from God. 
if you're in conflict with me, right? Like, that's where Paul is saying it. I mean, he's got the proverbial trump card, right? Like, like, you couldn't, no prophet could say, well, Paul was wrong in this respect. No, he wasn't, because he was speaking from God. And so there are, and so now what this means, though, is that there are false prophets, there are false apostles, there are false signs and wonders and all these things. But that doesn't mean they all are. Some are good and some are not. And so this requires discerning and testing of spirits. All right. So now let's back up here real quick. So then what do we make of 1 Corinthians 14, 35, sorry, 34 and 35? Let me read it. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then he goes on and keeps talking about tongues and prophecies. So it's, this is not Paul. It can't be Paul just going, let me break for a moment about everything that I've been talking about. Let me go talk real quick about women in the church and how this should apply. I mean, that doesn't fit into the context. And so Paul is still on the same thought process of orderly worship, how does the body gather together? I think, and here's my interpretation of this. Well, so first, this, this immediately goes against uh, 1 Corinthians 11.5, right? Paul just wrote, uh, when he was talking about heads being covered, he says, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So, so the women are praying and prophesying, and this is in the church. So how do we, how do we understand this? Because obviously to pray or prophesy, maybe not pray, but to prophesy is to speak out loud, and, there, and then in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 34, he says they need to keep silent. I think the difference here is that tongues, foreign languages, presented an opportunity for women who were largely uneducated at the time to speak in church where they could never really speak before. And so it was an opportunity for them to kind of just exert some participation in the church, and nobody could tell them that they were wrong, right? Or they could stand up and interpret and nobody could tell them that they were wrong or not appropriate or anything. And so it just kind of created some, some more of that disorder where he goes, you know what, for the women, from, from when we're talking about interpreting tongues and speaking in tongues, the women shouldn't be participating in that because this, this is going to create some more conflict. And again, his, his goal here is to not create conflict, honestly, more in the home than what's happening in church, right? They're, they're all integrated together. And so if you have a woman that's interpreting a message from, a, from her husband. Now, there's a whole other piece of this that we talked about, right? Where Paul says that he speaks in tongues more than everybody else. And he talks about in this private prayer time in Romans, right? Of like how this, the Holy Spirit does it. So it seems as though that there's certainly, at a minimum, there's an opportunity for us that the Spirit will intercede on our behalf in some aspect, some way. Sometimes this is called a private prayer language. It seems as though Romans seems more prescriptive that that is actually going to happen in the individual believer's life because specifically Romans is a, um, is a book written outside of a context. It's written, right, it's not written to a church. It's written kind of context contextless, is that a word, right? So it's just a theological treatise, and so when he's saying stuff in Romans, it's, it's easier for us to take the things in Romans and say, this applies for all time, than it does when he's writing a letter to responding to the Corinthians in Corinth in the first century. So it's, it's a little bit different from that perspective. So, so the question then, 
is from a continuationist perspective, why would, why would God end this? If he intends for it to build up the church, if he intends it to edify the church, and God's all-powerful and God can speak to us, and he gives us gifts, we read that in chapter 12, why are we artificially ending these things? Especially if we're doing it and we're keeping it within the constraints of Scripture and we're keeping it orderly and everything that we talked about through chapter 14 is true. What's, why, why would we not do that? And we certainly don't want to do this from a perspective just because it's uncomfortable or it seems weird. We got to step back a little bit to before we were coming into church. Coming to church is weird. Coming and praying is weird. Talking to, talking to somebody by yourself on your knees and on your living room, that's weird, right? So we, we don't want to define what we do or don't do just because it happens to be outside of the norm. Giving up your Sunday morning is weird. Sacrifice, sacrificing yourself, dying to yourself and your own interests, that's weird, right? Like, we are weird, right? Paul says we're going to be weird. It's okay. The question is, what does God want for us? All right. So that's a continuationist argument. It's not perfect. It's certainly not. Uh, I, I, think, I, I think I hit the high points of that. Um, all right. The cessationist argument. So what's the other side of this? Um, they would point to the fact that this is very contextual in the church of Corinth. It's very, it's, it, Paul doesn't ever talk or encourage another church that he writes to to speak in tongues. He talks to them about baptism. He talks to them about gathering together. He talks to them about um, the Lord's Supper. He talks to them about unity. He talks to them about all these other things, but he never encourages them outright that, hey, these gifts of the Holy Spirit are going to, uh, God intends to use them in your life. So it doesn't seem like there's a consistent prescriptive guidance from Paul throughout the scriptures saying you should be doing this. Now, that's an argument from silence, which is not a good argument, but it seems as though he doesn't really talk about it that much. Um, Acts 19, this is in Ephesus when they speak in tongues, and then Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians, doesn't even talk about it. So really, Ephesus should have been the very first place we would have seen tongue speaking, and we probably would have thought that that would have been what Paul would have included in his letter. Again, another argument from silence, but nonetheless, uh, Clement of Rome was a bishop in 96 AD. He actually wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Very, so this is remarkably close, right? So the 1st the, uh, Corinthians, I think it was like 55 or 60 AD, um, and so now you have, you know, you're just 40 years later. This is now Clement of Rome who's writing to them. He writes this long letter to them, never mentions tongue speaking at all. Doesn't, doesn't encourage it, doesn't discourage it, doesn't, it, it's like it, it's not even happening. So it kind of seems like whatever was happening in Corinth might have just been this initial freedom fest that the Corinthians were enjoying and going, we can do whatever we want now, and Paul's very quickly trying to put this down. And it seems like that, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, it seems like he is kind of moving in a direction where he's not trying to, like, discourage them from doing it, but it doesn't seem like he's super fond of it. He's like, 
It's okay if you want to be spiritual. Just don't forget what you're doing. It's okay that you're doing these things. Just make sure you're remembering about Christ. Right? So it kind of seems like he's, he's taking this middle ground, and he doesn't want to like just shut, cut them off at the knees, but it doesn't seem like he's got full board approval for them. Tongues as a foreign language seems to be predominant among the, the early church fathers. The idea that God miraculously would speak through people um, in order to evangelize seems to be a very predominant, as I'm reading through these early church fathers and they're talking about it, it really does seem like, and they even list off different languages that they have seen people do this in. It seems very concrete, very much down the camp of, hey, this is a foreign language. Um, like I said, some of them still think that they continue, some of them think that it ceased, but it does certainly seem like there is a predominance of that. Um, Ephesians 2.20 This is, where, this is a, um, an argument that, that this has ceased. It says in verse 20, um, I'm just going to back up and read the front, but you can just stay on 20. But it says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Cessationists would argue apostleship is done, prophets are done, Prophecies are done, tongues are done. That was the foundation upon which the church was built. That, and it, put yourself back into Paul's context. They didn't have scripture to go to. They had words from people. God revealed himself, right? So legitimately, if you were in the church of Ephesus, other than a letter that might have circulated coming around to you that was from an apostle, you didn't have anything else to go to as guiding authority. Imagine trying to build a church or, or to do a church service with nothing other than the initial planting, right? Like that would be challenging. And so that's where we would say that the apostles were those sent by God to stay, plant the church, instruct with authority, right? We talked about that. And that then once that happens, now the foundation has been laid, Okay. And so they would, they would point to that. Um, so again, the corollary also is that then that means that miracle workers and healers, again, I want to clarify, nobody on either side says that God can't do these things anymore. It's just whether they're gifts that continue to um, be possessed by, that's a bad word, <laughs> that, that God has given somebody the gifts to be able to execute these different things, right? Um, and so they would say that that's the same thing, signs and wonders and miracles, like those were meant to authenticate the gospel message when it was at its infantile stage and you didn't have scripture available to you. And so what they would look to is 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul, as he's writing back to the Corinthians again, he's talking about these super apostles and he's, he's de debating with them and he says in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so he's contrasting, he goes, whatever they're doing, that's great, but they're not true apostles. That's his implication. I'm a true apostle. I was sent by Jesus Christ. I've seen him, I've witnessed him, I was personally commissioned by him. And what did I do? The signs of a true apostle. 
signs and wonders and miracles. And so uh, cessationists would say that that stuff was, was critically important for the foundation of the church. But after that, now that we have the Bible, um, it's done. Um, so let's go back to that 1 Corinthians verse that we read before. Prophecies, they will pass away. Sorry, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, they would say that is this. It is scripture. When scripture was fully inspired by God and the canon closed and God said, I'm not writing anything more, right? All sides would agree that there is no more authoritative source to this. Like this is the authority of God's word. And so therefore, this is over and done. We're going to spend a little bit of time on, on a, a Bible uh, sermon series here after we finish up 1 Corinthians. And that's some of what we're going to talk about is, is this sufficient? It's a good question. And so a, uh, a cessationist would say, this is entirely sufficient. I don't, they would say, God does not reveal new truths. He may impress upon you a scripture, a truth that he's already written down, but he's not gonna give you something new, something fresh, a new revelation. Like those things won't happen. He will point to scripture. When I stand up here, and say, God says, it, it, I finish that with a chapter and a verse. And that's because this is the word of God, right? And so that's what they would point to uh, for that. And then the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, again, going back to that verse. Um, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, right? He was talking about that, um, sorry, um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse... 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. They would say that this gives us the ability to accomplish those things. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. We're never going to be perfect until we're actually with Christ, right? But that this gives us the ability to do that. In fact, um, 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm going out of order here. Sorry. Second Timothy 3.16 seems to address this when he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It seems based on that, uh, a cessationist would argue, no, no, actually scripture is what makes me capable of being complete and equipped, fully complete and fully equipped. And therefore, no, I don't need these gifts to continue. These gifts were important for the foundation of the church, but that God speaks to us primarily through scripture. And then they would point to Hebrews chapter two, verse three. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That whole verse is in the past tense. The, the author of Hebrews is drawing back on that time when God did this. This is while God also bore witness 
Uh, it was attested to us by those who heard, right? That, that this apostles and prophets, the ones that were hearing from God, have testified to it. The ones that are apostles wrote this down, or the ones that were following apostles wrote this down, and so that was established as, um, as the foundation of our faith. The, probably the major concern for cessationists is that, or their concern with continuing, the, the gifts continuing, is honestly, does not seem to be the presence of tongues. It's, it's what comes out of the tongues, right? And, and, it's, and it's, so that's the interpretation of the tongues. It's, it's what is that? And it's the same thing that's coming from prophecy, right? It's the idea that God is speaking something that the church needs to hear through different individuals spontaneously. That's the concern that a cessationist would say, well, how do we then know we need to test the spirits? How do we know that that is actually from God? And if it is from God, how do we know, or, you know, well, yeah, if it is from God, how do we know that that is actually God that's speaking? How do we know that it's not something else? And so does God require that to happen in the life of the church? And that's where the cessationist would say, no, the scripture is sufficient. Okay, I think, that's, um, I think that's all I got for the cessationist argument. Um, for the foreign language piece, let me just go back and read this real quick. Uh, so this is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is what, why people would say that, that tongues are, are a foreign language. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. This one's a little bit, like I said, there's a lot more uh, continuity of belief associated with this one. Like people, a lot of people would say that that was, yes, that was foreign languages. Um, they, you could also say, like I, I've said this before, it was a heavenly dialect that the hearers could then understand in their own language as well. That could be it, right? But, um, but this is Pentecost, okay? So, the argument that this is a foreign language and that God intends to, intended to use these tongues as an evangelistic purpose, this is the argument. I'm going to go down the argument of the foreign language piece here or what their argument would be. Um, at Pentecost, that's, um, that's, Pentecost stands for 50th. That's the, the uh, 50th day after Passover. It's the Feast of Weeks. That's where Jews from all over gathered in Jerusalem. That's the time when God chose to pour out his Holy Spirit in humanity. This was, that wasn't coincidence. That was very uh, uh, providential. You can make the same argument that the reason why this whole timing is happening in the Roman kingdom is because there were roads being built and aqueducts and information could travel much quicker. This was an opportune time for God to move and act. And I think that's what they would say was happening is these were foreign languages because everybody from all sorts of places came to Jerusalem and in an instant they could all proclaim the gospel and they could go out and now 
everybody in their own language. And they would all testify that it was a miracle because they thought these guys, everybody thought that they were drunk because they didn't, hear, they didn't know what the language was that was being spoken. But the people who did were like, no, that's my language, right? And so uh, that would have been seen as a miraculous event. Probably the best opposition to uh, it being a foreign language is what I read this morning, 1 Corinthians 14.2. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. That doesn't seem like it's talking about a foreign language. That seems like it's talking about a heavenly dialect. Um, um, however, um, in the context here, Paul is being critical Right Again, go back in the context. Paul is being critical of the usefulness of this in the church body. So it's not that he's necessarily talking about who's hearing it and who's not. He's just saying, dude, like this isn't applicable for everybody. You're speaking to God. You're, you're doing your thing over here, and nobody else is getting to participate. So while it seems like you could take that and just pull that out of the context, in the context, it seems like Paul is being more critical of it than he is trying to describe what speaking in tongues was. Um, if you go through and read all of this, and I think, I, think I, I think I proved it today, as you read through chapter 14, you could have gone down the foreign language camp or you could have gone down the heavenly dialect camp and everything still applies either way. There are no other verses about tongues specifically outside of 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians doesn't talk about it, no other letters talk about it. And so there's really, there's gifts of the Holy Spirit that are talked about, but not specifically uh, tongues. Um, and so uh, as you look through that, you go, could it be a foreign language? Could it be a heavenly dialect? Yeah, it could be either one. And frankly, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I, I know people view both of those things. Um, and I personally have never experienced it. Um, and I've never, um, I've never heard it other than on YouTube, and uh, I don't think that's a valid source. Um, so, like, I, I don't, um, um, I, we need to be careful as to what we discard or apply. I think we need to be open. We need to recognize this is an open-handed uh, doctrine and that people will do uh, and think both things. I, I will even say that there's an, an additional element to this that, um, it's, it's experience-based, right? And so there's a piece to this that for, for me, who has never experienced it, to say that you have not experienced this, it's kind of a moot point. Like, I, I can't say that. I don't, I can't, I'm not in your shoes. I don't know what your interpretation were. I don't know how you've been brought up. I don't know how environment has affected or impacted. I don't know how it's affected or impacted me, right? Like, we are what we are based upon the constraints as to how we've been brought up, and we bring with us our experiences and, and, our, uh, and our assessments of life. And so um, I think that that is a, uh, we need to be very careful before we discard something wholesale, especially when we're talking about matters of God. One argument on both sides of these things is that of blasphemy. And I think it's a very important one because it's blasphemy. Um, a, a continuationist would say to a cessationist, if you're saying that what, let me try to be a little more clear instead of doing that. So if somebody is speaking in a tongue or a prophecy and they're saying God says this and somebody says no, he didn't, and God did, objectively, God's in heaven, he gives this word to somebody, and they speak it, and I stand there and I go, 
God didn't say that. That's blasphemy. Right? On the other hand, if God didn't say this, and you, and you think it or feel it, and you say it, and God didn't actually, God's up there going, I never said that. That's blasphemy. <laughs> it's a little bit of a catch-22, right? Like, you, there's no safe place for us to operate here other than recognizing that none of us want to be blasphemous. All of us want and think that we are communicating edifying truths uh, that are encouraging and building up of the body. And as long as that's the case, I'm good, okay? We should be good. All right. Uh, there is so much more to be said on this. And one thing that I didn't touch on is, is uh, does prophecy continue and how does prophecy continue? And, and especially if we take Scripture to be the Word of God and it doesn't add to it, um, I will tell you as well, there are, there's a lot. I mean, you turn on the TV and you're going to see versions of things, right? Um, that doesn't mean, right? There's abuses all over the place, right, on different things. So we can't just discard it because of that. So uh, just realize that that's the case. I am not trying to hide my position. I honestly don't know my position. Um, so take that for what it's worth. Um, I would, uh, I, I, I don't particularly want to ask for a bunch of inputs, um, but if you do have questions, I'm happy to direct you to resources, but honestly, this is one of those things where it's like, you can get trapped into spending your entire life digging down these trenches. You can do the same thing with reform, with election and predestination. You can do the same thing. We, we got to be careful, and I think if we go back to chapter 14 and read it for what it is, we've got really important things to do, and that's edifying each other building up the church that's reaching others proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray.